Welcome to the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast, where we talk strength training, science, and all things performance for cyclists and triathletes, helping you be a stronger, more savvy athlete now and for many years to come. Here's your host, Menachem Brody. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 157 of the Strong Savvy Cyclist and Triathlete Podcast. This week, I am really excited to share with you this interview with Cheryl Strauss-Einhorn. Now, I was introduced to Cheryl through my investing practice from uh, one of my mentors, and uh, he referred me to her book, Investing in Financial Research, A Decision-Making System for Better Results. And really, this is where I think that coaching and life and investing, all of these things intertwine very closely. And for me, uh, this is a process and the introduction to Cheryl's area method has really helped reform how I make decisions. And it has really made me a much better coach, a much better professional. And uh, this is something that I think every single cycling coach and triathlon coach should listen to. This is such an important part of our our profession is being able to make decisions. And one of the things that I've really made a point of here on the podcast is to try and make it accessible and, and easy to understand what exactly it is that we need to do in order to help our athletes and clients to do better. And for you, the listeners, if you're self coached to do better and decision making is at the crux of it all. So it's not the question that you're asking, but it's how you're making decisions once you've asked that question and begin to look through the information, especially these days with all of the uh, training by science put out there. Well, if you just read the abstracts uh, and you don't actually know how to read the research itself to dive down to understand the strengths and weaknesses, both from a statistical standpoint as well as um, how they executed it, and who the sample size was, it can really leave you at a disadvantage and not have you taking the best information. Now, this is a mistake that I made early on in my coaching career that I was very, very research-based. Show me the research and we'll do it. Thankfully, I had a couple really great coaches who were patient with me, allowed me to be young and silly and a punk, (laughs) uh, and really to learn what exactly it was that I needed to gather from the research. So oftentimes when I was young, I would see in an article, they'd mention a research article, I would open it up because I wanted to be thorough. And then I would look at the abstract and that was it. (laughs) And this is where a lot of us are these days, especially with how much science is being put out there. For example, there's now science about, um, I forget what it's called. I believe it's essentially um, self-regulation. That's what it is, self-regulatory strength training. And you know what this is when you actually boil it down to? It is training by perceived exertion. (laughs) That has been around for over 100 years. It has been something that I've been doing here for Human Vortex training the last couple of years. And I have had people point their finger at me and tell me, you're ruining your athletes. Same thing as they told me when I said strength training for endurance athletes is really important. And I'm not saying this to impress you or say how great I am. It's more of I made a lot of mistakes a lot earlier in my career than other people. Uh, because I was out doing, and I'm not following the research. I was out like, hey, let's see what happens if we do this. I'm just a natural curious George, minus the trouble he gets into. And what I want to try and share with you here with this interview with Cheryl is this is a process 
to help you make better decisions. And she actually has three books, or her third book is coming out. So the first one was Investing in Financial Research, A Decision-Making System for Better Results. That's how I found her. Her second book is Problem Solved, A Powerful System for Making Complex Decisions with Confidence and Conviction. And her new book is going to be coming out here uh, in about a week after the posting of this, or 10 days after the posting of this podcast on March 15th, Problem Solver, Maximizing Your Strengths to Make Better Decisions. So a quick bio about Cheryl. Cheryl Strauss-Einhorn founded Decisive, a decision sciences company that trains people and teams in complex problem-solving and decision-making skills using the area method. And I'll tell you exactly what the area method is here in a moment. Area is an evidence-based decision-making system that uniquely controls for and counters cognitive bias to expand knowledge while improving judgment. Cheryl developed Area during her two decades as an award-winning investigative journalist writing for publications ranging from the New York Times and Foreign Policy Magazine to Barron's and the Stanford Social Innovation Review. Cheryl teaches at Cornell University and has authored two books, aforementioned Problem Solved, a powerful system for making complex decisions with confidence and conviction about personal and professional decision-making and Investing in Financial Research, a decision-making system for better results about financial and investment decisions. Her latest book is about Problem Solver Profiles, Problem Solver, Maximizing Your Strengths to Make Better Decisions, and is being released here about 10 days in March of 2023 after the posting of this podcast. Learn more, uh, you can watch her TED Talk or you can visit areamethod.com. Now, before we get into the interview itself and the HVT update, I want to give you a quick insight or overview rather of what the AREA method is. So A-R-E-A stands for absolute. So getting information directly from the source. R is relative. This is information you would get from a newspaper article, a magazine article, or going to Google and looking that way. So these are already things that have swayed how the information will be taken in by you. E stands for exploration and exploitation. So you're exploring around and exploiting your strengths and understanding your weaknesses, as well as understanding how to ask great questions. And A is for analysis, getting the data right and doing what she calls, which I think is brilliant, a pre-mortem and developing throughout thesis statement, which is going to change as you go through. Now, this is such an important podcast. I can't stress it enough. But um, let's get into the HVT update for the week of March 5th, 2023, and then we'll get into the interview with Cheryl. All right, so a quick update here from the week of March 5th, 2023. Uh, the sling has been off now for about a week and a half. Uh, it is very interesting uh, as to how quickly the muscles of the body atrophy or, or break down. Um, I have this also for my leg when I broke my fibula. Uh, I actually have a smaller right leg than left leg at this point, although that leg is just as strong. Um, so the next couple of months is essentially going to be a half bodybuilder or, or partial bodybuilder uh, to get my right side, both leg and arm, back up to the size that's about equal to the left. Uh, and I'm doing this mostly because uh, it's a new challenge. I haven't done bodybuilding style exercises in a very long time. Uh, and I think that challenge would be a nice change up to the pure performance base that I've been doing for the last 15, 16 years or so. And um it's been nice. You know, the, the muscles get tired. Uh, technically, the sling has been off for a week and a half, but I do put it on somewhere between three and seven in the afternoon uh, and the early evening just because those muscles get tired. Uh, and just working on basic 
shoulder movement and strengthening, so YTWL, um, internal rotation, external rotation, some tissue strength, uh, a little bit of foam rolling and gentle breathing exercises to help with uh, mobility. And the goal of these are not to improve range of motion, but to improve strength through range of motion. That's something we'll talk about here later in the season. Um, if you guys have not subscribed already or followed us on whatever platform you listen to, this podcast, I strongly recommend you do that because when you listen to these in order, a lot of work is done behind the scenes to order these podcast episodes to be as powerful as possible for you. Now, that's something that I'm, I'm delivering to you guys for free. There is no charge uh, for this podcast, obviously. Although if you would like to support it, you, I think Anchor now or, or Apple, iTunes, I don't remember which one of them offers that you can be a supporter. But this is part of what you pay for when you by a course. Rather than just getting information willy-nilly, um, I'm doing this on the podcast for free for all of you to help you get more out of the podcast. It's not just a bunch of different guests who are just thrown together. You know, As of about a year ago, the order is put together very specifically, painstakingly in some cases, and this episode is the beginning of six in a row that are going to really help you, or actually last episode was the beginning of six in a row that will really help you to get far more uh, out of your season. So last episode, we talked about the five things to do to help you get uh, to your best season yet. This week is Cheryl Strauss-Einhorn. Next week is going to be um, 10 foods you should be eating to help you to perform. Then we have Tim Cusick on uh, to talk about the importance of adaptation. And then we have uh, another uh, solo episode in there. And then Namrita Brooke will be on to talk about nutrition and how you can actually improve your performance with that. So we've got some great stuff going on. So if you subscribe and follow, uh, it helps you a lot because you are getting notified and you're seeing the podcast episodes every week. It allows you to come on that journey and to continue that thought process and build that mind map. It's essentially me coaching you kind of through the podcast. Now, that also helps me because as I go to some of the guests that I have on my fishing list, uh, I can say, hey, the audience is this big. These are the people that come. So if you could, make sure you subscribe and follow. That would be greatly appreciated as well as giving it a review. Now, speaking of decision making, as we're going to talk about with Cheryl here, really important. Now is the time we're actually sitting here. Uh, it's March 5th. I'm recording this live uh, the day we're posting and it is 90 degrees outside. Call it global warming, whatever you want. This is a day that I want to be out on my bike. I want to go and do stuff. And it's just a reminder how many cyclists and triathletes will drop their strength training completely when they get to this point. Once we get the nice weather, they're out of the gym. They're not doing strength training at all. Maybe some core, whatever that is. Um, but really, if you want to see the results that you're after, you've got to keep up your strength training year round. Now, if you're looking for a system to help you to be able to do that, the Stronger After 50 system I've built over the last two and a half years to help you be able to take your strength training through the season and see your best results ever. Now, that program includes uh, a year-round program for, or the system includes a year-round program for bands and body weight, bands and kettlebells, or the full Monty, so barbells, dumbbells, and kettlebells. Once you choose a track, stick to that track because each year is, or each program is built on top of one another. So it's a three-year system built to take you from bands and body weight to bands and kettlebell to kettlebell bands and barbells. So if you're interested in seeing your best performances ever and experiencing top-level, fully up-to-date strength training programming, 
to help you to be able to be fitter, faster, and stronger this summer. The Stronger After 50 system is a great place for you to go. Now, if many of you have been following any of the HVT approaches, whether from the Strength Training for Cycling Performance book or from my other programs, the 12-week core is an example. A number of people have gone through that. Uh, I would strongly recommend dropping into Stronger After 50, stage number three. If you're unsure and you've been following other programs, uh, the go-to would be bands and body weight. It is a fantastically challenging uh, program, will help you get the results you want. Or if you've been kind of dabbling in kettlebells and bands, then you can go there. So without much further ado, let's get into today's episode with Cheryl Strauss-Einhorn about decision-making, because there is really a lot that uh, she has to teach us to be able to make better decisions. So here we are, episode 157 with Cheryl Strauss-Einhorn. Cheryl, welcome to the show. Thank you. So excited to be here with you and your audience. Well, this has been something we've been working on. We had to to reschedule thanks to uh, my earned injury, but um, there you go. You can hear the Velcro as I adjust. Um, I'd really love to ask you, how did you become an expert in decision-making? That's such a unique uh, perspective. Thank you. Um, So it was really an accident. I was a journalist, an investigative journalist at the business magazine Barron's, and I was writing stories that often had a very big impact, stories where I would be focusing on what might be called the bearish company stories. They could be taking a skeptical look at a company's finances or at their strategy, And when these stories came out, sometimes the stock exchange would halt the shares. Sometimes regulators would get involved and ask for investigations of the companies. And for a couple of the companies, they went out of business. For one company, the CEO actually was sentenced to 10 years in jail. And I just started to think about, well, who am I as a decision maker? And how do I actually know that I'm not making incorrect assumptions and judgments about information? And how do I know that I'm really trying to openly listen to other people when they speak to me about their ideas? And so I started to just think about decision making and think about how is it that I could maybe set up a system that acknowledges that we all have flaws in our thinking and can better account for where we make these assumptions and judgments to control and counter them so that we can help make our big decisions better. So that was how I came to it initially. And then from there, I've written now three books on decision-making, Problem Solved, which is about personal and professional decision-making, Investing in Financial Research, which is about financial and investment decisions, And then in the next couple of weeks, I have a new book coming out that's already available on Amazon called Problem Solver, which is about the psychology of our personal decision making and helping people to figure out their problem solver profile. Well, I came to you initially through the investment in financial research that was uh, suggested to me by one of my uh, mentors and then get into Problem Solved, which uh, you actually had uh, Micah from Pitt or looking at Pitt or John Hopkins. Uh, one of the EMTs I worked with on the ambulance actually went to Pitt and had been considering John Hopkins. So I'm reading the book. I'm like, well, uh, this is purely a fictional character, but that's uh, quite a coincidence. Now, what was interesting to me about problem solved was exactly what you're talking about, the, the predisposition 
um, of our, our decision-making. So what was it that led you to want to write Problem Solver and get into the psychology? How did, how did that come about? Well, what I realized is that once I put Problem Solved out into the world and introduced people to the area method, everybody can use it. And it doesn't matter what you're applying it to. If it is, you know, for a career decision or an education decision or deciding on where you're going to go on your honeymoon or what kind of a honeymoon. What I realized is, though, that different people use area differently. And that's because we're each different. And so what I realized is that the missing piece to figure out how to help people is to ask them, who are they as a decision maker? Because parts of area will feel very natural and parts of area may feel uncomfortable or new. So what I learned, for instance, is that people in the intelligence community, they loved doing interviews, but they felt less comfortable gathering numbers. And the financial community loved gathering numbers, but felt less comfortable or less need to conduct interviews. So once you figure out a little bit about who you are as a decision maker, it can help you learn about why you tend to prefer and feel comfortable with certain kinds of information and why you want to maybe build some new skills in areas where you have not necessarily given a lot of value to those kinds of data. Well, this is one of the things with uh, which coach, with coaches uh, that we tend to get into things and, and we really start to look at um, our own perspective, right? So it's greatly influenced by, by our thoughts and when we look at the area approach, um, exactly what you mentioned, like when I got into it with the numbers, a lot of it was very much around uh, everything was great until I got to the interview. And that's something that as a coach, I absolutely love. So to me, that juxtaposition and understanding and better knowing myself of, okay, so I'm doing a better job uh, of looking at uh, the information in front of me, but I've, I've, siloed in my head these two things and i've i've come to this idea of okay when i'm a coach i love interviewing but when i'm doing finances and investing uh it feels weird to pick up the phone and call them why do we need to investigate our own decision making here it's a good question. It's because we really have no awareness of it. It's not part of a curriculum. It's not something that we talk about in conversation. Um, we may talk about, and we do frequently discuss, let's say, a specific decision, either before it's made or after we've made it. But we really have no awareness about the process of decision-making itself. And our engagement in this field of thinking is foreign to us. It surprises us. It's outside of how we think. And that's rather amazing when you consider that our choices are the only thing that we truly have control over and that we tend to make thousands of decisions every day. And there's also uh, the the offshoot of decision fatigue as well, right? So having something like area or a, a step-by-step process, just like you know, coaches and self-coast athletes we would have towards building a training program, now, you can get results of doing stuff here and there, um, but to really have, you know, absolute relative exploration and exploitation and then analysis at the end and each step allowing us to be present. And I, I find with coaches, especially 
10 years ago now, not as much, but talking about strength training and changing their, their mind map, um, it really was a struggle because they, they come into it with a certain perspective and they're not able to step back and look at the information in front of them as it stands. It's influenced by previous. I'm certain that especially writing the articles you have uh, for Barron's as well as these three books, you've really learned a lot about the different way that people make decisions. So so what are the big, I guess, pillars that you've learned uh, about the different way people make decisions? Well, through the research that I've gathered, I've identified that there are five different ways that people tend to make decisions. And each of these problem solver profiles has some beautiful strengths and also some blind spots. Um, and these problem solver profiles, you can think of them like handedness. Most of us either have a comfort with our right hand or a left hand, and we can learn to be ambidextrous. It takes some effort, but these are comfortable patterns and natural approaches to how we tend to react to our decisions. It's uh, very uh, fortuitous you use the right and left because I have uh, I'm right-handed, so I tore the bicep of my right hand, and I'm getting very good oh. with my left. <laughs> um, but that is so absolutely, uh, um, I think, fundamental for us to understand is that there are profiles for all of us, right? And and a profile doesn't fit exactly, but it gives us a strong idea of where we stand. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the different uh, problem solver profiles that you've, you've come up with here through your research? Yes, they are the adventurer, the detective, the listener, the thinker, and the visionary. And the adventurer is somebody who likes to make decisions, has an easy time of it, is confident and optimistic. The detective is more methodical. I'm a detective. I like evidence. I like research. Uh, sometimes I value data more than I should, more than I value the opinions of other people. The listener is somebody who generally has a trusted group of friends or advisors. She's good at gathering opinions. She wants buy-in or social proof to make a decision. A thinker is somebody who tends to be good at problem solving, but has a tougher time coming to a decision. The thinker likes to define her options and tries to limit the downside. And then the visionary tends to be a creative, blue sky kind of a decision maker, somebody who's energized by new ideas and has difficulty at times with sticking to a decision because she can see the rainbows that nobody else can see. I love that analogy. That's awesome. Um, I, I'm much more a detective and thinker. Uh, those are the two. I Earlier in my career, very much a thinker. Um, these days, uh, by the way, uh, for those listening, Problem Solver is going to be released here, I believe, uh, March 15th, 2023, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, you can pre-order it. Cheryl did not ask me to plug that, but I want to make sure you guys know because we're going to get into some deep stuff here. And you're going to go, oh, what's the name of the book? Problem Solver. It's coming out soon. Um, for me, I've been able to make this pivot into the world of endurance sports, which the last 10 years has become very research oriented. Like if there's not research on it, people won't do it. Uh, which 20 years ago, uh, I was called weird, uh, which I was happy to, you know, that's fine. And now I find myself going more along the lines of a thinker of what does the individual in front of me need? Now that's a changing of my thought process. 
Can you give us an example of, of a decision through the five um, problem solver profiles and what that might look like? Because I know mine has changed drastically when I look through my notes. It's very different. Well, you're right that the problem solver profile is not proscriptive. It's not going to tell you what you're going to do in the future. What it is going to show you is, as we discussed, where your comfort zone has been. But then by learning about the five problem solver profiles, you can change how you make decisions. So let's give an example. I thought it might be fun to discuss a dinner party. So the adventurer might go to the supermarket, see what looks good, and create a meal. And she will probably choose something from her cooking repertoire because she wants to continually move forward and get on to the next decision. The detective will likely have information about what each person likes to eat and what they can eat and is going to plan out the meal and take her shopping list to the store. The listener is going to check in with each person their dietary needs, what kind of foods they like, and then she's going to try to actively make a meal that speaks to those preferences. And then she's going to shop and cook to those specification and has a meal where she thinks everybody's going to be happy. The thinker is going to think about what her friends would like, but also what could go wrong. And she's going to go to the store to manage making a meal that's going to prevent those mistakes. And then the visionary, different from the adventurer, is going to set a theme for the dinner, and she might be very comfortable making something that she's never made before and that she debuts at the dinner party. So that's an example of how differently the five different problem solver profiles enter into the decision, and you can also understand the value structure. They're optimizing for different things. As you're reading through those, I can think of both people in in my investing practice that I share information with, uh, who who fit those, as well as many coaches. Now, what and, and it's interesting because some of those coaches they can't get along because the thinker and the adventurer are so seem to be at odds with one another. So, what does this mean for making decisions with others? So, in a coach athlete context, like what would that look like? Well, as I was mentioning, the five problem solver profiles, these decision approaches are optimizing for different things. So the first thing is building your awareness. The adventurer is optimizing for momentum. The detective is optimizing for research, data, and evidence. The listener for gathering input and hearing what others think. The thinker for knowing her options. And the visionary for something that is new or novel. And so once you begin to build an awareness of the lexicon of the problem solver profiles, then you can also begin to think about situationality. How do they interact with each other? What do they amplify? What kind of tensions might there be between them? And third, you can use the knowledge to better create your community so that you know when you're working with a different problem solver profile or even with your same problem solver profile, how do you want to come into that conversation so that they can hear you and they can listen to you and so that you can make your big decisions better? That's really interesting and, and something that I've, I think I myself have done a decent amount in my coaching career over the last 28 years. It's, a lot of it is because I learned it from my my coaches in that 
when I come to a point where either I feel like I'm too much in, in a groove where I'm, I'm coming to the same conclusion for different athletes too frequently, right? There's common themes. Uh, I will purposefully go out of my way to have a conversation with a coach who disagrees with me on that approach. And we're friendly, right? Well, it's not that, you know, the, the modern day trolling, right? Um, but you're talking about the pre-conditioning uh, we come into and essentially the environment. So how does the environment impact us? Because I notice my programs get way better after I have those conversations. I'm just sharp and I'm on point. How does environment impact us in our decision-making? So I spend a whole chapter on this important topic, and certainly it could be a whole book of its own. But when you think about how the environment impacts us, there's sort of four factors that I think benefit us to tease out. And that would be location, life stage, people, and decision ownership. So the location is kind of the place, the physical space and the context. Are you in the classroom as a teacher or a student, for example? For life stage, are you the teenager or the retiree? Um, if you've been in the same position for a while, is it that the job is changing around you or you're following the same protocols or procedures that you've been following for people who are the other stakeholders in your decision and what's your relationship to them. And for decision ownership, it's really about how much will you or your organization be impacted by the decision outcome and how important is the decision to you? And so if you can think about those four things, which are always having an impact on us, you can have a more comfortable way to think about whether you want to show up into that situation and into that environment as you have before, or maybe you want to try something different. Are there strategies that you found that, that folks use to, to kind of become more nimble in, in, in changing that environment? So that's a great question. All of my books are filled with worksheets that I call cheetah sheets. And I name them after the cheetah because although she's the fastest land animal accelerating by up to 40 miles an hour in a single stride, she decelerates by up to nine miles in a single stride. And that builds agility, flexibility, maneuverability. So in these cheetah sheets, which are, which are spread out throughout the book, I give you both a blank template so you can apply it yourself. But then I also, in this book, give you a completed cheetah sheet. So you can see how another decision maker has worked on that specific aspect of their decision making. So I have one for situationality, which is what I call this mix of these different components that we've been talking about that each impact us individually, but that all together can really confuse us as to how we want to show up in a situation to really make a good decision. Now, when you're talking about showing up to make a good decision, there are so many outside influences that we have. So we, we talked to, or I mentioned earlier about how coaching these days is so research-based. The number of people, I took it off my website, I believe. I, I asked the, the developer at least to, to not say research-based because I, I think it's gotten too far. And what that's done is there are some really good coaches who have left the coaching profession because it's very much an art and a science and they're not detectives. 
They're creative thinkers. They, they're excellent at listening to the foot strike of the runner or the triathlete, um, of looking at the athlete when they greet them and feeling their handshake and going, you know what, we're going to turn it up today. We're going to turn it down. And the sports had a big loss specifically with two of them. I won't mention them by name because I, I don't know if they want folks to know that information, but they were essentially forced out because people were saying, oh, there's no research behind it. Now, these both were individuals in their 50s. They'd been doing coaching for 35, 40 years. They all had different reasons, and, and we and we won't get into that. But can we change our problem solver profile? I know before you mentioned it's more of like a, a skewing one way or the other. Is that something we can change? Is there a certain age that it cuts off? There's no age cutoff, and there's no moment in time where it's going to necessarily happen for you or not happen for you. It takes effort. Athletes know this well. They're very intentional in how they approach their training. Um, we might want to change for several reasons. First, um, as a way to grow ourselves, to be a more dynamic decision maker, to make better decisions with others, either one-on-one -on -one or in a larger group, or because a decision is before us that we really want to get right for ourselves, some high-stake decision or consequence. I want to come back to what you said, though, about an art and a science, because there's certainly room for both. And some decision makers, as I mentioned, the detective specifically is somebody who really wants data and a lot of research. But we're always dealing with people and people are not just about the science. People are an art. And the problem solver profile uniquely brings the art to the science because that's that's exactly what we need. When we're interacting with somebody, how do we show up to be able to listen to what they're optimizing for, speak to their incentives and motives, and understand why they're trying to solve the problem that they want to solve so that we can solve it well together. Like what you're hearing? Hit subscribe and leave us a review. Now, that's such an important part, and I think these days the pendulum is swinging too far on the science, uh, but having that different problem solver profile and having an understanding, like I, I mentioned earlier, when I coach, I do interview. It's, a, it's essentially figuring out, is this a good fit? Now, how does understanding your problem solver profile allow you to better connect or, or um, work in teams or or in families or in groups because that's the dynamic where one-on-one -on -one, we can be like the cheetah very nimble and and well if we're if we're working on it we can adjust so how does the problem solver profile help us to work in those settings across those differences i think it helps me every day um, i think it shows you the value of intellectual diversity we each bring different lenses to how we think about a decision. So having that diversity of di different decision-making approaches is really going to help ensure that we have a more fulsome understanding of our decisions. So you can use it to make big or small decisions. You can use it specifically on a big decision. You can use it to help you in getting along with other people and making decisions together. You can use it to increase your self-awareness of how and why you make choices the way you do. 
you can use it right away, all the time, in every situation. And you can then have some pride for why you operate the way you do. And as you mentioned, you can build some agility and flexibility to know that you can change and that you can work better with others than you are working now. Now, going back uh, to, to your your first book, Problem Solved, uh, you had mentioned great questions. And I, I think that is very relevant to Problem Solver. I'm just looking through my notes here, and I, I think I have about 15 or 20 passages just from that one uh, chapter highlighted. But the great questions is so important. And, and asking open questions and not leading, you, you t- uh, alluded to that, of, of you have to be careful how you ask the question because it's easy to lead people astray. Now, part of the Problem Solver uh, book, you actually did a quiz and you have thousands of results. Uh, It was very nice to see uh, how those questions were written in a non-leading way. Now, that's a lot of data. So taking that data, what has that shown about the five different uh, Problem Solver profiles and what are the distribution of responses? Like, how would you interpret that? So we have over 2,500 responses Um, and by far, we tend to get the most thinkers. And then the second would be our detectives. And then we have the visionary, the listener, and the adventurer is a very small percentage. So I'm gonna tell you our ahas. First, an adventurer might not wanna take the quiz. She might say, there's five problem solver profiles and I know who I am, I'm good. And now I'm gonna go have lunch or do something else. Um, The other thing I would say is Harvard Business Review ran an article about Problem Solver, which also had a link to the quiz. Now think about the readers of Harvard Business Review. It's really, it's available to everybody, but how likely is the adventurer to necessarily read all the way to the end to also see that there's a link to the quiz? So, I think that thinkers and detectives might also be people who are more amenable to a quiz to confirm their problem solver profile. They like evidence, they like proof. And so we wonder if the group results that we have collected so far may also have benefited from being shared in these outlets before problem solver itself has come out. So adventurers, please come take the quiz. Well, I, I think we'll have a couple uh, endurance athletes and their coaches here. I, I tend to see, um, I haven't read the book yet, so it's, um, I actually purchased it. I'm re- ready for it to, to come out on the 15th uh, of March here. Um, I think endurance athletes as a whole, you have two different ends of the spectrum. And it seems to me, and I'm, I'm totally painting in broad strokes and we all know how that winds up, right? It's never a Picasso. It's more of a, what's his name with the speckles? I can't remember. Jackson uh, Pollock. Yes. Thank you. I was like, I feel horrible. I should know this. <laughs> um, so as, as we go through for endurance athletes, you know, how, how, how can they look at these different problem solver profiles to allow them better abilities, I won't say results, but better abilities in their training and approaches. Yeah, I think it's very important for athletes because they're a group of people trying to get better. And in order to get better and to make improvements, there's a lot of decision making. So a dedication to make improvements by learning about how they approach their decision making can help them better understand who they are. Um, And then 
they can also learn about how to make decisions so that they can get better. So you could learn your problem solver profile and you could see really why you have approached training the way you have. An adventurer, for instance, might see something that's not working and just pick something new and adjust immediately. A detective might want to research the problem, the different solutions, how they worked out for different athletes, and they might then be able to select how they'd adjust. A listener might want to talk to a variety of people who touch on the topic. So whether it is other athletes or trainers or nutritionists or sleep experts or people who know the local terrain of maybe where they're thinking about cycling next. A thinker might really home in on the few options that they have before them and focus on how they compare. And a visionary might see the newest thing and then even bring her own twist. So you can see just from that kind of an example, how different athletes knowing their problem solver profiles can bring greater self-awareness to their process and to their decisions. I can think of about three athletes or coaches for each one of those. And it's really interesting. Um, you know, as I, I, I've gone through uh, the first two books, I'm working my way back through um, through uh, uh, investing in financial research. Sorry, my brain is still a little fuzzy. Um, it really is uh, surprising, you know, how the thought process changes. So I have a, a two or three notebooks here. They're each a different color. So when I read books, I take notes, have my Kindle as well. And I really find that as I go through, uh, it's a different context that I come into. And it's also the experiences that I've had have changed how I'm interpreting what you've written. And one of those things is going back through, and I've noticed a refining in applying the area method. So absolute rel relative exploration and exploitation and analysis for my investing, as well as for how I'm reading research. Um, how does the work on problem solver uh, or the area method, how does that tie together with the problem solver profiles? Because I, again, I notice I'm one person in the investing world and I'm a very, um, I'd say a little bit broader in the coaching, which was very interesting to me because I thought it was complete opposite. I think it's a terrific question. So how problem solver and the area method fit together is that there's two pieces to decision making. There's who am I as a decision maker, my problem solver profile, and there's what is decision making. What is a step-by-step -step process that follows a logical progression that allows for us to check and challenge our biases and to have an opportunity to make better decisions. And so knowing the problem solver profile as we've been discussing, can help you understand why do you make decisions the way you do? And then knowing a system for decision-making helps you make decision-making better because there's a lot to decision-making. So we don't use any learning system as it is. There's been a lot of conversation around the world about what is equity. And we tend to think of equity as access to something. While a knowledge system like the area method, anybody can use it. It's a free system to have access to. And the only thing that you need to do is to apply it, but we don't apply it differently. And so understanding how we use a knowledge system, the missing pieces, who are we? 
And so that's why this piece of self-knowledge always comes first, because it's going to let you know why you use a knowledge system a certain way, what is your comfort zone, and where are those areas and opportunities for you to do better and for you to have growth. It's funny because uh, through this whole conversation, I was thinking, uh, you know, I, I read uh, Investing in Financial Research, I think almost after it came out inadvertently, I think 2018 or 19, it came out. Uh, I read it probably three or six months afterward, and then I found Problem Solved. And now as we're talking about this, I'm like, man, this would have fast forwarded my application of the other two, uh, especially for investing to recognize um, I am still me, but how I apply me in different situations is so different. So that goes back to the pre-framing. Um, do you mind, can we talk a little bit about area method for just a minute or two? To Because we've alluded to it a couple of times and it's such a, a fantastic process. Like I've used that in my coaching, my motivational interviewing, you know, can you give an overview of the area method I've, I've walked through, but how that how that's applied? Sure. Thank you. Um, and I'm so glad that you are using it. So area is an acronym for the steps of my decision-making process that uniquely controls for encounters cognitive bias by helping you examine the incentives and motives of others so that you expand your knowledge while improving your judgment. The letters of area, the first A is absolute information from up close on the target of your decision. The R is relative information related to the target of your decision. The E in area is about expanding your research beyond document-based sources, and I call them the twin engines of creativity. Area exploration is about conducting interviews to directly understand the difference between the map and the terrain. I think that's a term that athletes would know well. And then area exploitation turns the lens of inquiry on you as the decision maker. Where do you tend to make assumptions and judgments and to help you test those assumptions and judgments with evidence? And then the final A of area is the analysis piece where you synthesize the information, you think about failure to shore up the weaknesses in the decision to better gear you towards success and it helps you to come to conviction on the decision. And the, the area method, um, that's beautifully and eloquently put. I really appreciate that. Uh, and it, it's so important to follow that step-by-step. Step. And the cheetah sheets made that very clear. Uh, I will say that as a little bit of an adventurer on that side of things, the non-investing, I, I skewed away. I did relative. And then I went back to absolute. The process is where the magic happens. And it sounds like through the problem solver profiles, understanding how you think, and again, in myself, learning one part for me in investing, the other part for coaching or, or learning in that side, understanding that the area method can be applied, but knowing where you're coming from, there's a lot of power in that. Like, is that something that has surprised you over the years as you've, you've written these books? Yeah. Look, I think there's two big ahas here. Because we don't see information at as it is, but as we are, the whole system of problem solver profiles and area is trying to build self-awareness. So as we've been discussing, the problem solver profile will show you which of these different five 
decision-making archetypes is your comfort zone and why that comfort zone has some beautiful benefits. And then a couple of blind spots, which are key cognitive biases that could be most problematic for that decision-maker. And then area says, you know what, because we are all flawed thinkers with these different cognitive biases, the key to really making good decisions is to change the way that we organize and interact with information and with other people. So if you think about it for a moment, when we solve a problem, oftentimes we'll type it into Google. What car should I buy? What bike should I buy? Whatever it is. And immediately we're going to get so many results, but we have no entry point into the information because we're getting information from other voices and we have no idea about the incentives and motives of those voices. Are they buying a bike for the same reason that I am in the same budget that I am to ride it in the same place, et cetera. And so what area basically says is that if we change the way that we gather and interact with information, we have an opportunity to let each voice talk for itself. And that way we can better hear the different voices and we can better have a collaborative backbone to make decisions that also strengthen our relationships. Because one of the pieces of information that's not true, that's done, I think, a big disservice to people is this idea that our decisions are truly ours alone. At some point, somewhere in the decision, there are other people who are impacted and we can make decisions and solve problems more holistically if we account for those other people and we bring this humility to our decisions that we need to pry open cognitive space to account for these mental mistakes, these cognitive biases that cause us to interact with our decisions through shortcuts that may help us making small decisions, but that don't go away when the stakes really matter. So that point about not having a, a understanding of where these other uh, opinions are coming from. It's so absolutely uh, integral. And I see it more and more being led in that direction with online resources. Because if you're not on the first page of Google, heck, if you're not above in the first 10, you're irrelevant, right? So like uh, when we look at research or we're researching, we're not really researching. We're taking the easy route. So the area method really forces you like, is this from the horse's mouth itself? Or is this someone else who has something that they want to sell you or 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 get you to a, a point decision. And it's interesting because we're now seeing um, a big change in how some coaches think and some people think. When you look at the area method, I, I see it, I see trends. When you look at, at how people are applying it, what would be one mistake that you see that might not allow them to see the results as quick for applying that and would not allow them to see those results? I think there's really a couple things. I really appreciate the question. One is a good vision of success when you start, which is identifying your success metrics, what has to happen in the outcome of the decision to know that it has succeeded for you personally or professionally. That's one part. And then the second part I would say is that people tend to pick and choose what they want to do because they like those pieces. And that again comes back to 
the problem solver profiles to really encourage yourself that discomfort is where the growth is. And giving yourself an opportunity to be in that discomfort is an opportunity for you to build some new skills and, and strengthen your decision making. So those are two examples of ways that if people can withhold the judgment and give themselves an opportunity to learn about themselves as a decision maker, and then to actually try the steps in the process, they can have, I think, a more satisfying experience. And I would just say one other thing that I think, again, area has some unnatural pieces on purpose because that discomfort, those speed bumps, that that is where the learning is. And that last piece that I'll mention is people are often willing to gather information and then they assume that their brain has synthesized it. Oh, I've got it. But actually asking yourself to write a thesis statement and to sum up, so what? What did I learn? What does it mean for me? What does it point to what I should be doing next? And how should I then update my thinking about my critical concepts? This simple technique slows you down, puts in that cheetah pause, the strategic stop to actually make your work work for you. You don't have to go back because you've actually invested in summing up for yourself. What did I get out of doing this particular piece of research? Absolutely love it. I had a huge smile when you were talking about the unnatural pieces and the pauses. Go slow to go fast. And it, it really is the thesis writing. I, I do that for all of my clients. I've, I've done that since I was, I didn't call it a thesis, but like, who is this person? Where do we need to go? One paragraph. How can I help them? Uh, Cheryl, I can keep you here for another two hours. So uh, let's, let's, let's stop there. Uh, where can the listeners connect with your work and connect with you? Well, my website is called areamethod.com. It's A-R-E-A method.com. And you can find out a little bit about my books, recent articles that I've written, the types of services that I offer. And um, that's a great way also to get in touch. Awesome. Well, uh, like you say in, uh, in, in Problem Solved, uh, and I've done this just naturally. I was taught this by my dad at a young age. Uh, what else, what other questions should I've asked you that I have not? Well, I would say that I hope people check out Problem Solver. It is on Amazon now. You can pre-order it. You can take the quiz. And then if you'd like to learn more about how to put this to work for you, feel free to reach out to talk about a book talk or a workshop or some other way that you'd like to continue your decision-making learning. Awesome. And and to make notes, since you guys are listening to a podcast, the Audible audiobook will be released at the same time as the book, because we all like our mediums, right? We all have our, our predispositions, so it is already up there. Go ahead and pre-order it. Uh, Cheryl, uh, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. This was uh, absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed the conversation. That's it for this episode. Check out humanvortextraining.com for more great content and to keep learning. 